economics is the study of human choice in the world we live. Faith is confidence in what we hope for and assurance about what we do not see. By investigating faith in economics, we can learn how they lead to human flourishing. This is the Faith in Economics podcast, a presentation of the Gortney Institute at Ottawa University. Welcome back to another Faith in Economics podcast. My name is Nate Johnson. I'm the producer and graduate assistant for the Gortney Institute. Today on our show, we have Dr. Russ McCullough, the founder of the Gortney Institute and Wayne Age Chair of Economics. We also have Dr. Justin Clark, the Menard Professor of Philosophy and Ethics. And finally, Dr. Peter Jacobson, the Gortney Professor of Economic Education and Research. All right. Well, Dr. Clark drummed up a little article that he wanted to lead with today. And we're going to talk about culture and sneak in some faith components and some other things. So it's a philosopher that you respect and know, or Justin, or just somebody that you know of, that you like, that you want to talk about with these 25 things everyone used to understand. Yeah, so Dan Kaufman is a philosopher in Missouri, and I do respect him, and I know him just through like a casual email we've we've shared um, back and forth. I think once or twice. So he put out this article on his platform, which is the electricagora.com. So that's a great site to visit. A lot of good cultural commentary there, but he put out an article said that's titled 25 things that everyone used to understand. And he starts off, I'm just going to read his introduction. What strikes me more than anything about our current moment is how utterly alien the dominant zeitgeist is from that of just a few decades ago. Increasingly, I find myself unable to even comprehend people's reaction to social, political, and cultural developments, let alone identify with them. This rather abrupt estrangement is jarring, causing daily life to take on an air of unreality. And far more than my encroaching physical decrepitude, it is what makes me feel old. The 25 propositions below say things that pretty much everyone in the United States understood until five proverbial minutes ago. I collect them here, not just as a reminder of how much things have changed in such a short time, but because together they represent a wisdom about life that is needed today more than ever before. So there's only 25 of them. They're very short. I'm going to read through them. And then I thought maybe we could pick a couple and see whether or not we agree with Dan or... Can we, we, can we do a little groups? Maybe we'll have something to say in between. Amendment. You can interrupt me. As usual. <laughs> yeah, as usual when you're going to interrupt me. So starts out, number one, you can't always get what you want or deserve. Indeed, you often will not get what you want or deserve. Number two, who and what you are is only partly self-determined, and it's not the larger part. <laughs> number three, how you are characterized, spoken about, and identified by others is generally not up to you. Number four, confronting strangers with a raft load of stipulations as to how they must engage with you assumes that they care to engage with you in the first place, which may be untrue. And if they do, they probably will cease wanting to, unless you bring something so extraordinary to the table that it justifies all the trouble. Number five, you cannot make another person like or respect you, nor can you make them act as if they do. And if you could, it wouldn't mean anything and shouldn't satisfy you. Okay, interruption time. How you Number three, how you are characterized and spoken about and identified by others is not generally up to you? That seems to fly in the face of, I don't know, maybe even logic that how you carry yourself about and how you act or kind of who you are ultimately ends up conveying things. I, so I'm not sure, is this just assumptions that we took a couple decades ago that at least that's the walking assumption or... Is it stronger than that, that he's saying that's the what we used to understand? 
what do you your think? reputation exists in other people's heads. You don't get to yeah, control but, how other people. But I'm just think thinking your you. behaviors and stuff help shape that. It's interdependent. But I think the point would be something like it'd be very hard if you wanted to go out and improve your reputation. You could behave in a better way, and maybe that would start to change people's perceptions of you. But pe- some people are pretty sticky kind of views of of another person. And, and so there, there's, or, you know, or even, you know, that's people who know you well, like strangers on the street, don't know things about your personal actions or things like that, but will still have some sort of view of your identity after talking to you for one or two minutes, uh, intro- introducing yourself. You say you're a professor, you know, that gives them something that they now know about you. They're going to make some sort of view judgment on that. Well, and I, what came to mind is for every one thing you do bad, you probably have to do at least 10 things good to try to make up for them. So I'm thinking your reputation can go downhill very quickly in today's environment. And I think you're right. It'd be very hard to repair, especially more externally to people that aren't in your inner circle or that are fairly close to you. Yeah. And the trick is it's just not your property. Like it's something that's difficult for you to have full control over. Yeah. Full control over. Everybody wants a better reputation, whatever that means to them. But simultaneously, not everyone can get the best reputation possible. And so that, that must mean there's some element that's not controlled by you. You can think about this, I mean, even in terms of like nicknames, nobody <laughs> succeeds in making their own nickname, right? You get a nickname because somebody calls you that and it sticks. You know, I've had a few, none of them were very, you know, they're usually <laughs> cruel, right? And that'll come out later in this list too, but you know, you don't get to choose your own nickname. There's a huge, there's a Seinfeld episode where George wants to be called T-Bone, right? And, um, and the episode consists of him trying to get people to call him T-Bone. And of course he fails because you don't get to choose your own nickname. You never do. Okay. Okay. Six, justice will only ever be partially served no matter what you do. And it is dangerous to make its pursuit overriding of all other considerations. Number seven, the right of young people to create the world they want to live in is matched by the right of prior generations not to have the world that they went to great effort to to create, and often at great cost, screwed up. Eight, not discounting individual cases, which may vary widely, as a general matter, no one living in the U.S. and born after the Second World War is less safe or experiencing greater hardship or deprivation than those belonging to the generations behind them. Number nine, what we think of as progress is and always has been a mixture of steps forward and steps backward. Some things get better and some things get worse. And this in no way contradicts eight. 10, with regard to the relative merits of X and Y, a person who has experienced both is a better judge than a person who has only experienced one. All right, I have to bring up Milton Friedman that I think rings resonates me with the kind of justice comment in number six, even though it didn't mention equality. But he once said, a society that pursues equality before freedom will have neither, but a society that pursues freedom before equality will have generous amounts of both. And I think that's something we're maybe seeing today that as we pursue more and more equality, I guess some of our whether whatever form or policy that's taking is not necessarily going to lead us to the prosperity that people think is going to be around the corner. I think Friedman's right. And I think a lot of people agree with Friedman about the equality thing. 
but I think a lot of people still grant justice the role that Daniel wants to deprive it of here. So a lot of people say that's exactly why perfect equality isn't just, right? But what we should, what we should strive after is justice. And his claim here is even stronger, which is that justice itself isn't the only, isn't the uh, overriding virtue. Yeah. It doesn't override all other uh, virtues. Yeah. And th this is a good tie-in to uh, sort of our, our view as Christians is that this world doesn't end up being a just place. I mean, that, that's something that we we know from scripture, from Genesis. We live in a fallen world. Accounts will be settled by God at the end of time, which means that accounts won't be settled here <laughs> by definition. Mm -hmm. So, yeah. And uh, there are different forms of justice. I, I think of you know, the current catchphrase, social justice, uh, and, and it's variety of whatever that means, but then also economic justice, that what you reap is what you sow type of thing. And, and so I think he might be touching on some of those differences there. Yes, certainly. If we disagree about what justice is, and it seems like we do, right, then it's especially dangerous to have uh, justice be overriding all other obligations. So, okay, 11. Even for those who live in modern, developed, peaceful nations and who are financially well-off, life contains more suffering than happiness. 12. Every person will have to act badly at some point in his or her life, and for most of us, it will be more than once, perhaps even many times. This is part of the human condition and cannot be changed and is one reason why we must be forgiving of ourselves and of one another. 13, good times are precious and rare and should be cherished. They should not be expected, nor should they be scorned on behalf of some spurious conception of virtue. 14, safety is an instrumental good, not an intrinsic one. 15, offense, insult, and hurt feelings are not particularly important other than to oneself and to one's intimates. This does not mean that you should go out of your way to offend others, uh, but rather that if you are offended, you shouldn't be surprised if those outside your friends and family circle aren't inclined to make a federal case out of it. <laughs> so on the good times one, I think historically that goes way back to the dawn of time, probably that it was mostly filled with uh, misery and suffering. But I'm thinking of grandma who had a rainy day fund. And, and so when good days are there, you're planning for the next bad day. That's certainly changed in our environment today that uh, good times are expected. So I think that's very poignant, uh, his comment there, that this expectation level is up here. So then when the littlest thing happens, it turns your apple cart upside down. Yeah. You know, I was discussing this list, too, with a friend yesterday. Shout out to Rhiannon. And she said, well, 12 or 11 certainly seems kind of bleak, which is that <laughs> even for those who live in modern, developed, peaceful nations and are financially well off, life contains more suffering than happiness. Yeah. And I remember saying, yeah, I don't even know if I would actually, well, first I said, I think that it's one where if you actually accept it and then try to live according to it, you might be able to render it false, right? So if you accept that life is, that there's a lot of suffering, then this suffering doesn't actually cause you to suffer so much, right? <laughs> right, or, right. Or maybe I said the better way I would think about it is something like suffering is ineradicable. We can take steps to mitigate it and minimize it when it's excessive, but suffering is a core feature of human existence and it's neither possible nor preferable to eliminate it completely. So yes, suffering from unfulfilled expectations can somewhat be mitigated or fixed. So I think of my first economics professor way back when, 30 years ago, 
And he said, uh, you know, I, I like to eat at uh, Perkins. I really don't like their food, but I go there all the time. And because uh, I leave there always happy because I always expect a really bad meal when I go there. And so every once in a while, they give me a good meal and I'm, I'm happy when I leave. Otherwise, my expectations are filled. And so in that way, that your expectation level, kind of taking it back to what if people are always expecting good times, if you, if you have a different, let's call it worldview even, of... Uh, being reminded of the fallen nature and sinful world that we live in. And that number 12 was that every person will have to act badly at some point in their life. It, it does kind of change your outlook on things, I think. Yeah, I, I was uh, kind of in my head trying to reformulate number 11 too. That's the one so far that has seemed, to the, I, I don't know, that like maybe the least true to me, or at least like could be something that we could look at and see, no, that's actually not right. Mm-hmm. I decided that my my thought on the reformulation, which I, I'm happy with 11 in this slide, is to think of it as that uh, that suffering is like some sort of glaring thing or pain is some sort of glaring thing. That is when it's occurring, it overrides everything else. And so it's almost like pain and suffering have priority in your life over happiness. And regardless of you know what happens, what nice thing happened, if you stub your toe, you're in pain. And that goes to emotional well-being as well, is that a, an emotional low can always override an emotional high. And so that's kind of how I reinterpret 11, because I actually don't even know what it means to have more suffering than happiness. Yeah. So that was my other objection is that uh, I don't know how we weigh these things against each other. Right. right? Uh, you know, if I have if I have 700 oranges and two trucks, do I have more uh, oranges or you know, trucks? I mean, well, by weight, I have more trucks, you know, but right. you know, uh, yeah. You know, what's bigger, uh, 30,572, the integer or the state of Alabama? You know, right. I don't know. And they also don't seem mutually exclusive. It seems like you can be suffering and also be happy at the same time. Yeah. Yeah. But I think the, the core thing that he's getting at is that suffering is an essential part of the human experience. Yes. Yeah, like, yeah, absolutely. That's what, uh, you know, a lot of the major religions often are about mm-hmm. or ways to to deal, deal with, with suffering, yeah. and given that we are creatures that suffer. And I think if we thought hard enough about what uh, life would be like without suffering, we realize we can't even picture what that life would be. And it doesn't seem like a life that's human. Yeah. Yeah. All right. Well, that looks like a good spot for our break here. We'll come back and pick up with number 16 after oh, just a little bit. If you enjoy our podcast and want to support our work, please consider a one-time or reoccurring donation. Please visit donate.123povertysucks.org. The Gordon Institute at Ottawa University is the best place in the Midwest for students interested in freedom, justice, and its impact on human flourishing. We've got student programs like this upcoming week, uh, a review of a movie, The Little Pink House, where Governments come in and uh, taking over uh, houses to try to facilitate Pfizer coming into New Jersey. And uh, we'll talk about the role of government and how uh, it relates to individual freedoms uh, with that show. So items like that, we've got lots of programming here going on. If faith and economics in action. If you or someone else you know is looking for a college like that, contact Peter or Russ or Justin today. Don't forget to check out our show notes for this episode at podcast.123povertysucks.org. 
All right, we're back. So we're going to continue plowing through this list and, and see where it takes us. Justin, you want to pick up with number 16? Number 16. Uh, you don't accost random strangers in the street and unload your personal mishugas on them because <laughs> it's not their business and they don't give a damn. <laughs> Nothing about these reasons fails to apply when you replace street with internet. Mm. Mm. Uh, well, <laughs> 17. Scores of millions of people, most of whom neither know nor live near one another, cannot constitute a community. <laughs> 18. On most occasions, in most circumstances, manners matter more than morals. 19. <clears throat> one should care about one's intimates more than about total strangers. Number 20. Politics should matter less to you than your family and friends. Yeah, all right. So this this next five kind of brings up uh, subsidiarity, the concept of we biblical concept that we're better off staying more local when we can and go to the upper levels. So I think his point of my online community of friends or whatever is is so far distant from that, but yet we use that word. So I think he him just pointing out that word maybe that word alone in some ways has contributed to this where we're at today, the fracturing, because young people think they're in a community and, oh, well, my dad used to be in a community too 30, 40 years ago or something, you know what I mean? And kind of associating that with what we call community. Yeah. The, the idea of a global community is sort of, I think the oxymoron that's really being kind of beat up here, which mm -hmm. I think is that it's true that pointing out that this, like it's almost self-contradictory to have a global community. It's not a community anymore. It's, you know, global, like by definition, I think actually probably the most controversial ones to, to most people on this list, whether they realize it or not, they, they might sort of nod as it goes through, but I think 19 and 20, uh, and I like 1920 a lot because uh, they're both related in that uh, it's essentially saying that you should have not, not only is it pragmatic, which is the subsidiarity case, which I, I think is a very important case too, but it seems like it's saying that it's actually just right to have some sort of personal priority when it comes to helping others. And I think it's true. You have more of an obligation to your family and close friends than you do other people. Um, that's one of the points of having family and friends is to have someone who has that obligation to you and vice versa. Yeah. And Adam Smith, and I think Justin brings in the moral angle kind of similar to that, but I think it was Adam Smith that said well, the people that we care about, if we lost a finger of somebody in, or the, there was many people killed in a distant land, help me out, Peter, if I'm thinking of Hayek or something, but uh, people in a distant land in China, there was multiple people murdered or killed. And then you're like, Oh, that's awful. And you feel you feel sad for a moment, but then you move on to your next day thing and you care much more about your finger being cut. If that happened, you're, you're a lot more impacted by your finger being cut than the mass deaths that happened, but they were so distant. So I think he was arguing that we're much more wired uh, as a human to care about the things that are close to us as well. That's a Smith in moral sentiments. It is in moral sentiments, yeah. yeah. Um, and that in Smith, that seems like it's more of a factual claim about yeah. what we do care about, right? Right. Uh, but Kaufman's making the stronger claim here that we actually should care about our family and friends more. And I take it that's what Peter was saying too. Yeah. And I agree with that. Yeah. And that's your angle. You've said it before. That, yeah. That the moral. Um, what did you call it? Moral. You have a name for it that I always principled, forget. Uh, a principle of permissible partiality. Permissible partiality. 
I got to write that down, even though I'll, I'll forget. So in my claim was that you are permitted to weigh the interests of those close to you yes. more heavily than the interests of those uh, further away. And as I just stated it, that's even weaker than what he was saying. He was saying that, um, you know, it's, you're obligated to weigh okay. the, those people. And you're saying it's permissible. It's permissible. It's a little weaker. Um, now, I actually think that you're also obligated to, but I think that it's at least obvious. If you're obligated to, then you're also right. permitted to. Sure. Yeah. One of the things, I think one of my favorites on this entire list is 18, that on most occasions, in most circumstances, matters matter, manners matter more than morals. Mm -hmm. I can get it out of my mouth. Yeah, because those are the people you don't know. You do, you have manners, usually for people you're not as close to. Is that, that's what came to mind for me, or what's your thoughts on it? Yeah, uh, just from working 20 years in the service industry, it's amazing how many people have very poor manners, but yet still think that they're, you know, very good people. And I'm always aghast when people, you know, like treat service workers poorly or something like mm -hmm. that. And having good manners is a way to go about your day, not offending people, like you said, that you're not close to. It's a prescribed way of dealing with people who aren't your intimates. And this, this gets back to principle three about that you don't control other people's perceptions of your reputation. You, you would like to have it be the case that you can act in whatever way you want and people perceive you. But actually, society has rules about how you act and how you're perceived if you don't act that way. You don't get to control that. So, or, or at least society has in the past had those rules. I think Justin's right. I think that manners are sort of falling away. But there, there's good reasons for the manners that we have. That is, they're not just spurious. They're not just made up to be hoops to jump through. But usually, if you look at the root of a lot of these customs and traditions, there's good re uh, reasons for the specific manners we have. And I was wondering if, if there's any pathway back to that. So these are social norms that certainly can evolve over time but it seems they devolve more than they would become more in place. And I'm just purely speculating, but what came to mind is king and queen had very formal practices of how you acted in front of the king and queen, let's say, you know, way back when. And then we were liberated and, and we're like, oh, everybody should treat everybody else as a king and queen. And I kind of like these customs or manners that we have that we used to do only, you know, for the king or queen, those kind of translated. And now they start to go away. I don't see where they come back, certain types of manners, but maybe through prayer and otherwise would they, well, I don't know. <laughs> I think a lot of manners come from trying to signal that you are part of an in-group. That's why, you know, parents try to teach their children manners because they say, you know, I want, I don't want everyone else to think that we are uncivilized. Right? Yeah. Um, yeah. And so I think there's, it's probably a truth that when you have the ability to get social prestige for being part of that in-group, yeah. manners flourish. Um, no, that's interesting. The, the group that I work with here in Ottawa called Ripples of Change is to help people that are in or near poverty. And one of the things they do in the training is to teach them some of those social norms that they may not have ever grown up with so that they can, when you said signal to the in-group or the middle class, let's say, or, or the affluent that they, they know how to do that when they're in a social setting. And that was part of the training that they got that would be pretty important. Yeah. And, you know, the objection to that is, well, that's classist, yeah. right? And the reply to that objection is, yes, it is. Um, but this is the way the world works. And this is the way that, uh, that people 
are psychologically structured. Yeah, um, and, and if they're voluntarily trying to pull themselves out of poverty, this is just one of those things among many that can help you do that. Yeah, I mean, you're trying to help these people. Yeah, right? Um, right, and they want help, yeah. Okay, so rolling into 20. 21. 21, right. For most people, self-improvement pursued too rigorously, too consciously, or too much achieves the opposite of the intended effect. 22, the most virtuous people are the quietest about it. The least are the loudest. <laughs> 23, terrible people have produced and continue to produce great works of art and popular culture, the value of which persists regardless of the character or conduct of their creators. And uh, there's an aside, Bill Cosby's stand-up comedy from the 60s and 70s, which remains among the, among the best in the genre, is a good example. <laughs> 24, the point of engaging with arts and entertainment is not to develop a deep personal investment in the character of the artists and entertainers whom you don't know and never will. And 25, the best comedy is almost always laced with cruelty. <laughs> I don't even know exactly what that means, but I laughed once I said it. So I like 22, that the most virtuous people are the quietest about it and the least are the loudest. And, you know, these five taken together, there seems to be two claims, one about virtue and then another about the way we ought to value art and what we yeah, ought to value in it. And, and it's not just art, but we found this, I mean, you can find this in philosophy too. Frege was... Uh, a giant in analytic philosophy and in foundations of mathematics. It, you know, if you read his later journals, he turned into a rabid anti-Semite. Uh, does that mean that we don't appreciate the work he did on what, you know, on the development of modern logic or his discussion of what a predicate is? And I don't think so. But what you find today is a lot of people finding fault in an entertainer or an artist or whatever's personal life and the therefore deciding that that artwork ought not to be appreciated. And that seems crazy to me, if only because the creation of very, very excellent art is not something that a lot of people can do and maybe is not something that normal people can do. And so expecting that our artists will be otherwise normal people is just, I think, doomed to failure. All right, I gotta see if you can help me out with my dilemma. Maybe I can start listening to his music again. So I have not listened to Michael Jackson music intentionally, even though he's one of my favorite entertainers from his art, his music, after I watched the HBO documentary, and I'm pretty sure he was abusing children in a bad way. I'll just leave it at that. And from that day forward, I said, I'm, I'm, when he comes on the radio, I switch the channel or whatever, because I I feel like I'm passively supporting him that way. But I think this claim is saying that I could continue on and hate the person, love the person, not the same. Well, no, this, this is different than love the person, not the same, because we're loving the art, keeping the art separate from the person. But I mean, this goes in with all of these the Hollywood superstars and everything that have done bad things, and now their art is banned. So it's kind of in a similar vein. Yeah, and the claim here is that you're crazy, Russ. <laughs> <laughs> Well, I, I want to Throw be convinced of this. I really, I really like Michael Jackson's <laughs> work. So I, I'm hoping I can be convinced here from this for sure. And, and I think, you know, even uh, the, the author of the piece would probably agree that like if your enjoying of the art enables someone to do something immoral, that's like a different question. Yeah. But, you know, if someone's like not alive and not personally still doing it, yeah, I actually think this piece says that you probably can still enjoy it. Woohoo! You know, All right. I doubt that the foundation <laughs> is 
using the money to go towards like explicitly bad things and so mm -hmm. uh, you know that this is this is the unpopular opinion but the art stands apart from the person who made it i mean the the song doesn't contain in its essence michael jackson's immorality it yeah. contains creativity yeah. uh, of a lot of people too by the way not that yeah, uh, jackson right. didn't have a big piece long of list over the last yeah. 10 years and you know we just heard you sing thriller <laughs> so maybe you need to listen to it and that way you can get back on key yeah there you go. that <laughs> so, might be that might be it and of course that is an example of 25 which is comedy is always laced with cruelty. <laughs> <laughs> um, had to weave in an example of that using rust as an example love it love it yeah why do you think that is justin uh, i think that that's probably like factually correct that if you go i mean you know that there's some element of subjectivity in there but if you give most people the ability to listen to most comedians i yeah. think the biggest laugh oftentimes comes with like cruelty of some sort yeah. why do you think that is i don't know <laughs> i know we've talked before about comedy being unexpected too and it has to do with the unexpected i think it has to do with cruelty i think one of the reasons it does, one of the reasons cruelty works so well is that when you deploy cruelty among amongst friends, it is unexpected and you can usually, it's obviously something that uh, can be taken not seriously. Yeah. And when a comedian's on stage, then you know, you can kind of expect the unexpected, I guess, or if they say something, you know, you're, you're similar to being in a friend network where you know they're kidding or something. Yeah, uh, and the comedian on stage might be taken that way too. I think one of the things you do when you watch stand-up comedy is you kind of surrender your your thought process to somebody else for a little while, and you let them think for you. And if they think very uh, cruel things, but not, you know, if if somebody just goes on a diatribe of cruelty for an hour, you don't find that funny, right? But if they think things that are more cruel than you usually would, but in unexpected ways, that's a thrilling process to deliver yourself uh, psychologically over to that person for that amount of time. But I don't have a very thoroughly worked out theory of comedy, but that's... All right, so that's settled. I'm going to listen to Michael Jackson from here on out. You guys have convinced me my moral chains are are broken. I don't have to feel that that guilt. Uh, it sounds like you're just putting it on us now. <laughs> <laughs> you see that transferability yeah. Yeah. there? Yeah, which I'm sitting there thinking, do I feel guilty that Russ is doing this now? And so the answer is no. So <laughs> when my wife asked me, like, what, you're listening to Michael now? And I'm like, yeah, Justin and Peter said I could. Uh, I'll just leave it at that. No, maybe I'll, you could dress like him. I'll, I'll cite this podcast. Oh, gosh. <laughs> Yeah, I was th I was thinking back to 18 as well on manners and morals, and it reminded me a lot of manners and language, which language wasn't talked a lot about on this list explicitly, but I feel like implicit in this is a lot of like discussion about language conventions. And one of the, the interesting things about today's world is that a lot of the manners have been lost from our language conventions. There are words that were not appropriate in most settings, which are now appropriate in most settings. So for example, you know, still you'll find people who don't swear at work, but there's a lot more of it than used to be. I think that's, that's very, uh, you know, a much more common thing. And certainly, you know, among circles of friends all the, all the time, even if you're in public or something like that, you don't worry so much. Uh, whereas that would once be thought of as unheard of. And this connects back to, and, and I reference him a lot because it's the, the book that I read most recently in depth, which is uh, Ernst Jünger in his book, Ormsfield points out that the, the ability to have language manners in your language is actually very important because it's hard to live in extremes. 
And so if you can't, if you're someone who, you know, doesn't scoff at the idea of gobbling up bread, Junger says, if you're always gobbling up bread, it's going to be really hard to take communion seriously. And so I think this, this highlights an interesting thing that if you don't, you know, if, if you don't have any space where your words are policed, it's going to be hard to have a separate space where your words are sacred. And I actually think religious ritual and sacred moments and things that you don't touch, uh, you know, relationships with family and friends, those are very important. And so I I think that, that those relationships are actually not immune from the manners that we have in the rest of society. And so I thought that was a good point, Junger, and uh, 18 made me think of that. I would also highlight the other side of that, which is that if you have, if you don't have manners, not only do you not have like the sacred, you also don't get the punch of actually breaking the manner, right? Swear words cease to have force when everyone is swearing all the time. Mm -hmm. But if your father never curses and then you come home with a report card and he drops an F-bomb on you, uh, (laughs) that carries more weight than if, you know, he's uh, going through the litany of swear words every morning when he wakes up. Yeah, it reminds me of Justin. I've talked to it frequently about, and I talked to it with Russ too, about one of our favorite comedians, Norm MacDonald. And uh, if you look back at some old Norm TV specials, uh, there's a few where he goes on Conan, which I think is like at 11 instead of midnight or something like that. And he, he drops uh, a word that b- begins with the letter F. And the, the, the crowd goes insane. Like they, they think that this is hilarious and like a, a, a crazy thing. I mean, a th- like uproarious moment. Uh, and if you did that nowadays, I don't think that that would happen as much because, you know, in the early 2000s, that was still something that was considered basically taboo. Whereas today, like, you know, you can go on Twitter and see it 40 times in like two minutes. Like it's very possible that that could happen or you can hear it basically every day if you, you know, hang around with the average person. So I, I, I agree with that. Yeah, you, you lose some, well, you lose the punch of, of breaking manners and rules when you don't have any. And I think that's a good point. I wanted to just lastly bring up the self-improvement one, number 21. For most people, self-improvement pursued too rigorously and consciously or too much achieves the opposite and intended effect. I think from a biblical standpoint, we see a lot of people, and again, you want to keep your body healthy, but so many people push it to one extreme or the other where they're really worshiping themselves. And I, I think some of my friends who, you know, aren't either aren't Christian or, you know, maybe just don't think about that stuff very much slowly start to worship themselves with working out so much or staying healthy. And, and I think it certainly goes against that. And the unintended consequences, the, the love thy neighbor, if you're spending so much time on yourself and staying inwardly focused. And of course, the internet allows you to continue to be entertained and inwardly focused without having sometimes external criticisms. You can stay in your bubbles and it makes it difficult for us to engage in society in a healthy way. So I can't resist the urge to talk about Kierkegaard here. Okay. So Kierkegaard says that the self is the relation which relates itself to itself. And then he has this, his conception of despair. And Kierkegaard is a deeply Christian philosopher. And he says that despair is the self's misrelation of itself to itself. And one of the ways you can be in despair for Kierkegaard is by wanting to be something other than who you are. Mm. And uh, I think that uh, self-improvement, you know, if you're really focused on self-improvement, what you are trying to do is to make yourself into something that you are not. And uh, for Kierkegaard, and Sartre says this too, in his concept of 
uh, bad faith is that this is a kind of hatred of yourself for being yourself, right? Yeah. Uh, that's what despair is. It's wanting to be something other than you are. And you actually can never be uh, anything other than you are. And there's a great line that, you know, every time you try to do this, you will find yourself nailed back to yourself mm. in a way that's, so you can't escape it. And, you know, for Kierkegaard, the way out of this is, is religious faith. And, but it just strikes me that one way to avoid 21 is to actually, you know, not only love your neighbor, but to love yourself yeah. um, and to accept yourself for accept who you are. Accept yourself, yeah. Yeah. Mm-hmm. Yeah. And we see uh, increasing suicide rates and other things as far as that despair goes. And so, yeah, that reminds me of uh, Philippians 2 6, actually, that uh, Jesus, who was existing in the form of God, did not see equality with God as something to be strived for. Mm-hmm. So, I, I think that there, there's an interesting tie in there. And I also think that this point uh, could just as easily be talked about. So, we've got you know, self-improvement, that's like associated with, they call this grind culture, you're grinding for work and, you know, you're posting on social media. I, first off, I think that causes a lot of problems with young people who think that the rest of the world is, you know, way ahead of them and they need to make themselves into these, these people. But also I think self-care. And so we've gotten self-improvement, but I think this, this new term that's kind of been used a lot recently, self-care is also something that if done in excess, you know, it's actually going to be counterproductive. And so that's things like treating yourself, going out, you know, oh, you deserve it, that sort of culture. And Mm -hmm. it's like, uh, you know, you, as the list points out, you don't always get what you deserve. (laughs) And if you try to make that happen, uh, there are going to be adverse consequences. Mm -hmm. And I I think this is similar to uh, self-improvement is in engaging in self-care. I actually think you might kind of destroy yourself. All right. Any last thoughts? Uh, Just to sum up, we've talked about, you know, things that we think, you know, ways in which you need to change the culture. And it seems like this is a fine statement of at least 25 things that we, um, you know, and I agree with most of them, where we think that, or I think that the culture has taken a wrong turn. And so if you want to change the culture, one of the ways to do that would be, hey, um, look at this list. Tell me what you disagree with and why, and uh, let's have an argument about these things. Mm-hmm. Yeah, like starting with the manners, for instance, or whatever, having some of the list chipped away at um, slowly in different ways. There might be different approaches to uh, to the list. So, well, great. Well, this has been a production of the Gortney Institute here at Ottawa University. I'd like to thank you all for listening. And if you uh, feel so inclined, a five-star rating helps us reach other people. And feel free to forward our podcast along to other friends and family that you might think enjoy it. Other than that, be fruitful and multiply. Thanks. Thank you.